This is the Hot Stove Show on Seattle Sports. Presented by Hatback Bar and Grill. Streaming live on the Seattle Sports app and at seattlesports.com. Seawald gets the sign. He sets. Another 3-2. Swing and a miss. Strike three. Top of the zone. And Seawald is looking like the Hulk as he flexes. Walking off the mound. He gets the Mariners out of a bases loaded 10th inning jam. He strikes out three Astros hitters and sends this to the 11th. Tied at two. All right. Welcome back to Hot Stove. Great to have you with us here, Gary Hill, alongside Rick Riz, as we have Mariners lockdown relief ace Paul Seawald with us. Paul, it is great to chat with you. How you doing? I'm great. I'm great. It's good to see you guys. It's, uh, you know, we go from seeing each other every single day to four months of, <laughs> of nothing. And so it's good to see your faces again. And uh, just a couple of weeks, we'll be we'll be annoying each other every day. It'll be perfect. <laughs> uh, we are getting closer and closer, right? How excited are you? Very excited. You know, when, when you have a season like we had last year, it's it's very exciting when you, you feel like the anticipation to get back and, and uh, get going again and have an even better season than we had. That's how it felt last offseason, and it's even more so this offseason. Yeah, Paulie, what was it like to help hit the Mariners to the playoffs for the first time in 21 years? The 20-year drought was over. The excitement of, you know, Cal hitting that home run to – guarantee a playoff bid and then winning the series uh, in Toronto. What was that like personally for you out there in the bullpen and the rest of the guys? I mean, just a whirlwind, just a whirlwind. Um, the, the drought ending day was, was really fun. I was down because I had pitched the, the two days before. So I kind of got to be a fan there in the ninth inning. Like, Oh my God, I just watching with anticipation knowing I'm not going to play. I can't have any impact on this game <laughs> other than cheering him on. And uh, um, I mean, before the game, I was like, I wonder how we're going to feel if like how we clinch because it's just a clinch. It's not a playoff spot. Like it's just getting in. And, and then our emotion, everyone's emotion just took over and, and everyone in the T-Mobile area was dancing and everyone in our <laughs> bullpen was going crazy. And we ran in and uh, got to be a part of the big circle. And, and um, gosh, what a just, what a crazy couple of weeks. And, and it was a lot of fun. You mentioned whirlwind. That's a perfect word to describe it. I think now that you've had some time to reflect now that we're uh, some time into the off season, when you think about last year, what do you think about? I just think about, I think about a resilient group who didn't panic at all in April, May, and the beginning of June, when a lot of people were starting to ask questions of, you know, you have these expectations, what are you guys going to do? Um, and I know, I know a bunch of guys just were like, it's going to happen for us. It just, you know, it hasn't happened. Um, and then we kind of got, we had that, we had that great family trip. We went to, you know, went to Oakland and went to Anaheim and won five of six and kind of got, kind of got the ship righted. And, you know, then we started to play more of our normal brand of baseball, kind of everyone settle in. Um, you know, we had a lot of new faces and, and Seattle can be a tough place to hit. And so I think maybe a couple of people were, were a little shell shocked in April and May when it's so cold and it's really hard to hit there. And then started to warm up. We started to, you know, we stopped playing the Astros every other series in June, which was nice. And so then we kind of got back to, um, you know, who we are as a team. And then we went on that run and, and then it felt like it was a fair, it was a weird feeling that we felt like we were hanging on for about three months after that 14 game win streak. It kind of felt like, well, no, you're in like, now you have to hold on. And that was a, that was a very weird feeling. And, and, uh, you know, it was just, it was a relief once we accomplished that. And then I felt everybody kind of took like this step back and relaxed, like the drought is over. Now we can kind of just play our normal baseball. And I think that's why we played so well in Toronto. 
And one of the major reasons why that draw was over, Paulie, was, was because you guys, you know, you were a staple down there in the bullpen. It seemed like every time you came in, you faced the two, three, four, five, you know, six hitters, you know, in that lineup. And after you were 10 games under 500, you guys had the second best record, I think, in the American League or in baseball at like 61 and 33. What made this group so special besides talent, besides you? And Matt Brass starts off the year in the rotation, then he goes to the bullpen. Uh, Castillo and Munoz was unbelievable. What made this group so special? Well, number one, I think I think that the evolution of Munoz, um, you know, he doesn't have that many. He hadn't had that many innings in the big leagues. He'd only had 30 something innings one last year. Um, he comes to in a season and, and, you know, we all know how incredible his arm is, but you know, there's a difference between throwing hard and, and getting outs in the big leagues. And I think he just kind of had to find who he is. Um, and it took a couple of months. And then once he did, you know, he's obviously one of the best relievers in baseball. And, and, you know, that's, that's Scott and Woody and Trent, and that, that's their job to try and figure out who works really well and what situation. And it, you know, it took, maybe it took us a couple of months to get that figured out. And then I think maybe that's why our bullpen really found its shape and we had everyone found their role. And once everyone knows their role, everyone starts to pitch a little bit better. And, you know, that's just part about building a team and trying to figure out which combination of, you know, players in the lineup and, you know, bullpen construction that, that side sort of starts to flow. And once we did, it really felt good during that 14 game win streak. I mean, you could call down and it was easy. Everyone knew, okay, when the phone rings, that person's going in, like everyone knows their spot, they're ultra prepared. And that's why their focus maybe was at a higher point rather than, I don't really know. I could be the first one up. I could be the last one up. Um, I think once we got that figured out, it really, our, our bullpen really started to, to grow as a group. I got to ask you, there was, there were so many great games during the course of the season, but that final three games against Houston Astros, you gave Houston everything that they, they could handle. You could have won all three ball games, uh, the marathon, the final game of the year, 18 innings. And you pitched, I think the 11th and the 12th, two scoreless innings, no hits, no runs, no walks, and you struck out four, and the game just kept going and going and going and going. What was it like for you pitching in that ball game, especially in the 11th and the 12th, and then sitting and watching the next six innings? Uh, the sitting and watching is tough for me. I, I, you know, I've gotten pretty used to throwing later in the game, so I don't, I don't watch a lot of the game from the dugout or the, or the clubhouse or the training room. Um, that hurts because you just turn into a fan. There's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. Uh, I like having some sort of, <laughs> you know, ability to, to, you know, play and impact the game when you're, when you're done, it's nothing but watching it. And, and I just remember all of us, you know, one inning we'd be there in the clubhouse and it's like, all right, we didn't score, but we haven't given up any runs. So go back to where you've been sitting when we've been on <laughs> when we've been pitching and on defense. Okay. We're hitting now. Let's try and find a different spot. Um, uh, I mean, just like we were throwing out guys after guys in the Astros were too. And, and, you know, that's why they ended up winning the world series because their team was very deep and, and, you know, it just, it, it felt like we were never going to win, but never going to lose. It just felt like that game would go on forever. Um, and we just needed a break and, and, you know, unfortunately we didn't grab it, but you know, there's three games in a row that we just, we were right there. We just didn't make our own luck. Um, you know, people say you just need a lucky bounce and you got to make your own lucky bounce. And we just, we just didn't find a way to do that. That's a team that's been in the postseason a lot in the last decade. And they, you know, they just know how to handle that stuff better. And, and, you know, I was just as part of a problem of, of that series, not going the way we wanted as, as a help. And, 
you know, I'll, you know, I, I think I'm going to do a lot to make sure that, you know, hopefully I'm better in that situation next year. And, and, but that 18 inning game was a good one to finish on where a lot of us finished on a good positive note on the pitching mound. And, and hopefully we can build off of that for next year. With everything that happened last year, do you have a favorite moment? One that you'll take with you? Yeah. Cal's Homer. It's, there's nothing, there'd be nothing better than that. It just was like this gigantic sigh of relief. It was at home. Now the Toronto series, maybe if we don't want that at home and been in front of our fans, that probably would have taken the cake as, as the number one. Um, now that's number two. It's, it's not far behind, <laughs> but the fact that we got to end the drought at home in front of our incredible fans, I think was the most impactful and most memorable game, you know, maybe of my career and, and in my life. And, and that was very, very special. And, um, you know, we go in and we celebrate and we come out, there's still, I don't know, 15,000 fans that stayed for an hour after we did our celebrate. Yeah. Like it's 21 years. They weren't in a rush to get anywhere. <laughs> it was pretty, it was still, they pretty weren't leaving. no, they weren't, they were and, and, um, you know, 18 innings later, they were as loud in the 18th yeah. as they were in the first. And I'm so glad that we had a home playoff game. I would like to get more. And when I'd like to get a couple wins this year, but, but our fans are just incredible. And that, that was the most special moment. It just, it just felt like a dream, especially watching it from the outfield was just like something I, I, I couldn't have written. You know, what was amazing, Paulie is that, you know, there were 46,000 people at Rogers center in Toronto when you swept them in that best of three series. So you, you come back one of the biggest comebacks in postseason history, you know, in game two. And, uh, you know, I was amazed at the quiet, you know, toward the end of the game. But then there were like, what, 500 Mariner fans still there and you guys celebrated. It sounded like 47,000 fans at home. What was that experience like for you to, to win it in Toronto on their home field? Um, it was nice. It was nice. You know, they were, you know, they invade T-Mobile park when they come to town during the summer. Um, and they were, they were, they packed that place in, in July when they came and we swept them for four games and yeah. set them on their way. And it was nice. And, you know, I know they were, they were upset about how that ended. Um, some people weren't excited about my sweeping motion when we got there, but <laughs> then we swept them again. So I guess there's, uh, there's nothing to say about that. I just think, <laughs> I just think it was, you know, it was, it was pretty darn loud, especially in my inning where I didn't, you know, I didn't pitch very well. And, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't even hear the signs type of thing. So it, it did get very loud. Um, you know, and then we just started to chip away and chip away and chip away. When I was done pitching, all I could think was like, Oh, I just got to flush it. Cause I'm going to pitch tomorrow in game three. Like, so, I mean, nothing, you know, I'm not going to take this with me. It's no big deal. I'll just throw it away. And we start to come back. And the feeling was just like, as soon as they brought Romano on in the eighth, it felt like we may not win today, but we're going to win tomorrow because we have, he's got to throw two innings. I kind of, and then you just started to get a little better feel and a little better feel. And, and, um, wow, what an ending, what an ending. And, and Cal hits a double and Frazier hits a double and Kirby goes out there and in his relief outing. And, and that's that. And then we just get to celebrate again. Honorary member of the bullpen, George Kirby. Hey, we'll take, we'll take anybody down there. who gets three outs. That's all. That's all we care about. We're here with Paul Seawald on the hot stove. We'll come back with more Paul right after this. The hot stove show on Seattle sports presented by Hotback bar and grill. Seawald set. Here comes the three, two. Swing and a miss. It's Paul Seawald and he's got him. The slider as he cuts through and leaves the bases loaded. A big strikeout for Paul Seawald and we stayed high. 
Welcome back to the hot stove. Gary Hill, Rick Riz, Paul Seawald here. Uh, Paul, I am very curious now that you're a well-established pitcher. You've been one of the best relievers in the game the last couple of years. Going into this season, how are things different for you as you prepare for this season? The only difference from maybe a couple of years ago or the or my previous part of my career is that I have established what I do really well, and I don't need to come to camp uh, needing to show something extra, change something, fix something. Um, I just need to get better at what I do really well, which is kind of a, it's a really good feeling. Um, I don't need some new pitch or, you know, I'm not changing my locations totally like I did in 2021. I just need to get really good at throwing the ball at the top of the zone, fastballs and, and throwing sliders that start in the zone and break off. So that's just the most important thing. So for me, my, my plan is very, is very simple and I can just follow those two things. And that's the only two things I have to worry about in my, in my prep in my bullpens and, and, and in spring training. And so I think it makes, I think it makes my life a little bit easier in my, in the far as prep um, that I don't have to try and come up with, you know, some new idea of who I am as a pitcher. Paulie, over the last couple of years, uh, you have developed into one of the better relievers, I think, in, in the American league. There's no question in my mind, four years with the New York Mets, who was Paul Seawall those four years and what was the big turnaround and you signed as a free agent with the Mariners and what was the biggest turnaround for you to get things turned around here in Seattle? Yeah, my time in New York was not nearly as good as everyone had hoped since I got there. I got off to a pretty good start as a rookie and then kind of, you know, yeah. we had a lot of, we had, I had four pitching coaches and three managers in my four years in the big leagues there, which is, which is t- difficult to deal with that sort of um, lack of organization, lack of continuity, Um, you're getting a new idea from a different pitching coach every year. It seemed like some, you know, I obviously didn't think had the right idea. You know, I, I turned into a submariner for a couple of months. There was a lot going on there and, and, you know, it just didn't go as well as we had hoped. And, you know, I'm disappointed that I didn't pitch better there, but it, you know, it obviously led me to, to Seattle in 2021. And and I'm forever grateful for the timing and, and everything that the Mariners have done for me. And, you know, they just said, we need to figure out how you can throw the ball at the top of the zone better. And we need to just get your slider just moving to the left. We don't need any depth. It just needs to be horizontally different. That clicked really, really quickly. That clicked maybe like the next day after I had that meeting with, with everybody. And the, and the fastball didn't really click. And my spring in 2021 was a little rough. And it went to the alternate side and, and worked on it and worked on it. And, you know, it clicked when I was there. And, you know, we had a couple of games in AAA and, I had an opt out coming up and things had looked really good. And I, you know, I was trying to figure out if I'm, you know, I'm taking my opt out. Am I going to, you know, where am I going to go? And, and Andy McKay called me a couple of days before and said, you're not taking your opt out. You're coming to Seattle. We'll see you tomorrow. And I just kind of went there with, you know, an open mind that like, I'll try this. And if it doesn't work, that's okay. But at least, you know, at least I'm going to try something yeah. different that hasn't been working in New York. And um, it obviously works and I haven't looked back since, but it's, uh, it's been pretty crazy. From our perspective, when we have watched your story and a number of the pitchers, it seems like the symmetry between the analysts, the coaching staff, and the players is really strong, and it's produced great results. How do you think about the symmetry of the organization? Yeah, I think I think that goes from from Jerry down as far as who he's hired is important. Um, I, I talk a lot about how from John Stanton to you know the guys who clean the garbage in the tunnels, like every person at T-Mobile park is a good person. And just like, it just provides a better attitude around the field all the time. 
And then, you know, let alone who they are as people, they're very, very smart people that know what they're talking about. And I think just a blend of like Joel Furman giving the information to Woody and Trent and them talking in baseball terms rather than number number terms is that like conduit area that like you have to have that idea because it doesn't matter if the front office thinks you need to do this, but you can't, you, you guys aren't speaking the same language, then it doesn't matter. Your things aren't going to work. And I think that's a credit to, to who, who we have on staff that, you know, is able to talk in baseball terms, in analytic terms, in, you know, player terms, yeah. that sort of thing. I think it's the most important thing that, that the front office can get their message across because it doesn't matter if the front office thinks you could do this, but you're not getting that message and you're not doing it, then you, things aren't going to work the way we all hope that they're going to work. It doesn't matter if you do all this analytic research, but no one teaches me how to throw the ball up, then it doesn't really matter. Like <laughs> I'm never going to throw the ball up or I'm never going to move the slider the way I want to. That's, that's the important part is that we just have a great group of people who are really good at explaining what somebody's telling you going this way and then also going the opposite direction. So, or I can tell Trent and Woody to tell Joel, like, this doesn't make any sense. Like I need, I need, you know, you need to explain to me why I need to do that because I've pitched for 30 years. Like I, I, I know how to pitch. That doesn't make any sense to me. Then we, we go back and forth and keep that communication going. Yeah. It's got to make sense you know, for the player, all that information. The arc of a career is very interesting. You start off as a young player as you did with the Mets and now you've been around for a long time. Who was most influential to you as a reliever? And now you're the veteran guy down in the bullpen. Matt Brash, as we mentioned earlier, starts off as a starter, then comes down to the bullpen. How has Paul Seawall taken over that role for somebody that did it for you back when you were a young pitcher? For Seattle fans, you know Jerry Blevins from his time in Oakland for quite a few years, he was the most influential veteran that I got to kind of, he was my catch partner for a few years. He was a good influential person in my life trying to figure out like, how do I establish a major league routine where I can pitch 60 times a year? There's no off days. Like I, I need to be ready every day. What do I need to do to be ready? How do I figure out to lessen the slope of my roller coaster results? That sort of thing. I think he was a great, he was a great influence on me. And I really appreciated everything he did for me the first couple of years. I just think I've become that role because I've been through a lot. I've been through a lot of really bad. I was, I went through a lot of really bad in New York. And so I think I can, I think I've learned how to handle bad better than a lot of people. I'm thankful because I got another chance. Not everyone gets another chance once they've learned how to handle the handle the bad results. So I think that's where I can help is that I've been through, if you're pitching poorly, like I I will explain that I've pitched, I've pitched worse. Like here's how we can get through this. And I just, just, it's going to get better. And, and, you know, luckily for our bullpen, we don't have a lot of worse. It's usually pretty good. Mm -hmm. Um, So our roller coaster is pretty flat. Thankfully. That's the thing, man. When you look at this bullpen and the stuff alone is ridiculous. One slider after another, it's, it's all filthy. When you just look around at what you're surrounded by in the bullpen, how do you describe it? Yeah. I think it helps motivate each other to be as good as you can be because you know, if you, if you fall off at all in this bullpen, we, we have other guys that can replace you. That's kind of like, that's kind of the crazy thing is that like in my two years that I've been here and now it'll be a third and we'll have, we'll have different guys there you know, a third of the team is changed every single season in a major league roster, which is a crazy thing to think about, but like things change and there's different people. And, and 2020 was not very good for the Mariners pen. We had 2021. We had a bunch of people that weren't there. Um, me, JT Shagwab, second writer, Sadler turned into the person that he was. And then 
you know, then we trade JT for Diego. And so we go into 2022 thinking this is our group. Sadler gets injured. Uh, Steck, you know, isn't as effective as he is. Next thing you know, we get, you know, so then it's me and Diego. And then we get Mooney who turns into the best pitcher in baseball. And it's, you know, that's just kind of how it works. It's just, it's the next man up and it's, and it's your turn. And so when it's your turn, like you have to capitalize that on it. And I think it helps that our starters give us six innings every time. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we're usually winning two to one or three to two or, you know, five to four at the worst. And so it kind of makes us feel like, all right, well, these hitters aren't necessarily, you know, licking their chops to get up, to get up to the batter's box. They've had a tough day already. I think that definitely helps with the overall attitude of, of when we come into the bullpen. Visiting with Mariners reliever Paul Seawall here in Hot Stove. Paul, I want to go back a few years. 2015, you were on Team USA in the Pan American Games. Uh, who were some of your teammates, and how many you know have pitched or played in the big leagues from that ball club? Tom Murphy was our catcher. Oh, so okay. I've known I've known Tom for quite a bit of time. You know, it's funny that was the last time I'd seen him. He got called up. We flew home from the Pan American Games because we were playing each other in Double A. He gets a call. As we land, like, hey, come to the field and get your stuff. You're going to AAA. And I was like, well, can I still get a ride to the field? Because I'm stuck in AA. So, um, and so then I didn't see, I didn't see him for a few years before he went to, uh, before he went to, you know, he went to AAA. And then I got to see him when we were in Seattle. Um, but we had a couple of really good players. Um, I was there for Josh Hader's very first relief appearance. He, uh, he was a starter. He's an inconsistent starter in AA, throwing like 88 some days and then 95 other days. Uh, and they, you know, the Astros, this was when he was back with the Astros and they said, you know, we want to limit his innings. We'd like him to be a reliever. And he went out against Cuba. It was 98 to a hundred wow. <laughs> for really? two innings against Cuba. And we had some veteran guys who were like, yeah, you're never going to be a starter. Yeah. Like no. this is, you're never going <laughs> to be it. a starter. You are a reliever. Your days as a starter are over. You are going to be a lockdown reliever. And they, they called that one pretty well. They called that one pretty well. Uh, finally, Paul, uh, I think you are a great celebrator on the field. Can we talk about the heart? We, we always see you turn around. You, you give us the heart. What's the heart? So in 2021, my wife and I had our daughter, Chloe, in the middle of the season. Um, I came home for a paternity leave, uh, spent my five days here here in Vegas and then had to leave and go to Texas uh, because that's, you know, the situation that we were in. Um, and it just want, I just wanted to, you know, I just told my wife to, you know, make sure you watch after, after I'm done pitching, I'll, you know, I just want to show you that I'm thinking about you. And it just kind of turned into like, no matter if I'm in Texas or New York or Seattle and they're at the game, um, just a reminder that, you know, no matter what baseball is, it's just thinking about them. And, and, um, you know, oftentimes on the road, they're not there. So it's, it's good to just send them a little message. Well, I know we got to wrap things up, but what would you like to tell the fans about this group of guys, this team, after what you did last year to build on it? What would you like to tell the fans about what they're going to see here in 2023, a brand new year? I just want to say a huge thank you to everything that they've been through. Um, You know, I give them a lot of credit. You 21 years of an unsuccessful team and it didn't stop them from coming out in droves, even in April and May, when the weather's crappy, we're not playing well. Um, they still packed that place. And, and, you know, then we started to get on a roll and, and just the support that, that they show us on social media at the field um, was support in Toronto, in Houston. Um, just more than anything, I just want to say thank you to, to our incredible fans and, and the Pacific Northwest fans are crazy. And, and, and we appreciate every bit of it. They appreciate you too, buddy. Paul, this was really fun. Thanks for taking all this time. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much. We'll see you soon. So good to see you guys. We'll see you in in less than a month. Not very long at all. 
I know. Can't wait. Thanks, Paul. Take it easy, guys. There it is, Paul Seawald. We'll come back. We have more hot stove. Frankie Thon Jr. will be our uh, guest coming up right after this. The Hot Stove Show on Seattle Sports. Presented by Hatback Bar and Grill. Welcome back to the Hot Stove as we have a very busy, busy day. Frankie Thon Jr. is with us. Gary Hill, Shannon Dreyer here. Frankie, this is your busiest time of year. Where do we catch you right now? Where are you in the world? I'm glad to be on here, Gary. You know, I'm uh, actually on my way to uh, make another one of our signings here today. We've got uh, actually a really cheerful couple of days for us here on the international side of things. And- as Eugenio Sars would say, right, good vibes only, plenty of positivity. <laughs> We're still signing a couple more players. So, yeah, it's just uh, a really positive time of the year for us. Probably your favorite time of the year. So, really appreciate the invite and looking forward to this conversation. Frankie, can you take us a little bit more into what these days and what you're doing, um, what it looks like right now? It sounds like uh, you are literally all over the map and a lot of excitement. Yeah, we've got we've got our scouts flying all over the world. Really, we've got scouts in Nicaragua, we've got scouts in Curacao, scouts in the Dominican Republic, Venezuela, and then uh, Florida as well. So, as we allude to every year, and, and probably should have trademarked it because by now I've seen it used here and there. But yeah, I won't take the legal route. But <laughs> we uh, we actually kind of refer to it as an international day of joy, if you will, um, to make the analogy. For those who have kids, right, we think we know the definition of the word wonder, and then you kind of see it firsthand come to life with your kids. In very much the same way, the word joy, we think we know what it means. And then you get to sit there and witness an international kid and his family sign a professional baseball contract. And they're not only fulfilling a dream, but they're usually drastically changing, I guess, their living conditions, their quality of life. And, and, and when you see that expression of joy kind of materialized in front of you it's hard to top that it's i would say even the most cynical person would have a really tough time not getting caught up in the morning which is why again we we refer as our favorite time of the year you mentioned the scouts all over the world and all the work you do all the scouts all the work they do through the course of the year what do these couple of days represent for all that work it's the culmination really of a lot of work and and it's not usually months, it's years. And, and our objective at the end of the day is really to acquire not just the best combination of talent and work ethic, but the, the person and the human being behind the scenes as well. And so, sure, we want to do all the information-based decisions when it comes to what we see on the field, but, but the work that goes into getting to know a player and, and what the separator usually is, it, it is not the tools on the field because that way you can separate them as players, but when you're about to make a decision, it comes down to getting to know the player, the family, the trainers that are involved in, in, in that person's growth. So it's just a combination, a culmination, sorry, of, of all the work that's been done, both from our side as scouts, but also all the people that are involved in that, in that, in that player's personal history, right? It's a combination. It's a great, it's a great way to kind of wrap it all up. What can you tell us about the newest Mariners class? Well, obviously, you know, the, the headliner being Fendi Zellestein, he's, he's a very unique talent just in terms of the tools that he possesses, the elite athleticism, the position that he plays, being shortstop, the room for growth in his frame, the field for playing. You, you kind of grade him out in all those areas and you combine all the factors and you realize you're dealing with a really rare player. It's potentially at the very top of the scale. Um, it's not a stretch at all by any means to suggest that he's got 
perhaps the highest ceiling out of anybody in our Mariners minor league system. Um, obviously, having said that, those players who right now inhabit at the top of our prospect rankings, they've gone out and actually done it. They've complemented their talent by actually going out and performing. Now it's a matter of whether Felling can do the same, whether everybody involved in his development can, can kind of help him grow into that type of impactful player that he could be. Um, so obviously he's the headliner. And a couple other names we'll keep adding throughout the days here, leading uh, throughout the week. But out of the list that has officially come out, I'd say the other two to point out are, are two pitchers, Kendall Mesa and Rudy Navarro. Um, they're both hard. They're both hard throwing righties with a chance to have really big velocity on both our secondary pitches. Uh, Kendall Mesa is from Nicaragua. He's already throwing the low 90s, and he's got a solid slider. And, and Rudy Navarro is from the Dominican Republic. He's mostly a fastball change of guy, but both guys chance to throw really hard and, and, and have some impact secondary pitches. After signing day, what are the next steps for these players? So as the international landscape has changed, in the past, their past, they used to sign basically a year before they would play. So they would have all this development time. So not just after they would sign, they wouldn't play right away. They would play an unofficial league that used to be called Tricky League, and basically there would be no stats. It was not officially on their on the back of their card, if you will. And then after that would take that would take place for two or three months. Then they would go through full instruction in the Dominican Republic. Then they would go through spring training and then their actual DSL season. Since the dates after COVID, after the COVID lockdown, now their signing days have changed and now it's January. So that means that they have missed those six to eight months of really just pure development, not just on the field, but learning the culture and everything mm-hmm. else. So it's accelerated. It's become tougher. So now they sign in January. They come in on campus in February and they got to start playing a real season in May. So it's, uh, it's also affected the way that you scout because – in terms of trying to dream or project on players, both physical tools and their maturity, you have to adjust that way because you're basically losing almost an entire year. So, so they have to be a little bit more ready to kind of come in and, and basically show and go. What is the direction that you get from the organization? And some years you see it as a small class, some years it's a larger class, and you divide up the signing or the sign the, the pool money. Differently, I would imagine with projection and the age that you're dealing with, it's mostly go get the most talent you can get. But is there we need this down the road or we need that or we prefer that we do this in this season? How does that come down to to you and what you do? There's no real specific ask that changes year to year or, hey, there's a there's an area that we need to fill. Uh, really, it's more about, again, focusing on that information-based decision. Uh, rather than simply going off our guts or solely scouting off our scouting eyes. Obviously, those are all things that are really crucial parts of the equation, whether it's pro scouting, amateur scouting in the drafts, or international scouting. But really, the only direction that we get and the only thing that, that, we're, that we're really given in the sense of direction or instruction is the fact that we just need to check off. Um, we, we need to check off a long list of things that need to happen and that we need to see in order to put in front of the front office to be able to sign any sort of player. Um, at the end of the day, what ends up happening, whether it's a huge class where, or a bigger class where you kind of distribute money or whether it's a class where you spend most of the money on, on one single player, as is the case this year, um, that's just a case-by-case basis. You try to go after the best talent. Sometimes you get it, sometimes you don't. And then, um, obviously, you have your plan A, B, C, D, and, and so on and so forth. Just like you have in a draft, your your plan is only as good as, as your first if you're in a draft room, right, and obviously it's a different market, but if you're doing the drafting, you have your plan, and then all of a sudden 
the first five picks go in front of you, and, and then you need to go to your plan B, C, or D. It's similar on the international side. We have our, our main board, and, and we have the players that we go after. Sometimes you get them, sometimes you don't, and so you go, and so you go after the next the next few names. But there is no there is no specific need. We just go. We follow our, our general our general philosophy of kind of information based decisions, and the chips fall as they may. Visiting with Seattle Mariners Director of International Amateur Scouting, Frankie Thon Jr. Frankie, how would you describe, you're obviously very visible on these couple of days uh, with signing days, how would you describe your day-to-day job? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I would say we're almost in the witness protection program. <laughs> we are, uh, like you said, we're, we're visible for a few days out of the year. For the rest of the year, you may not even know that we exist, that we're alive. That includes our family members as well, with, with as much travel as, as goes on. But I think our the way our process is not that different than, than how we run things on the amateur draft side of things. There, it is no coincidence that a lot of us on the international department we get to sit in, uh, not just the draft itself, but during meetings and through the process throughout the year because we want to mirror it. It'll never be the same, right? But mm. we want to mirror the process, the decision-making process. Obviously, the day-to-day, where we travel, it is the same amount of travel as you do on the amateur side. It just so happens that instead of going from state to state, you're going from country to country. But um, the travel is very similar. The time on the run is very similar. It just so happens that instead of being in Atlanta, Georgia, or Tallahassee, Florida, you happen to be in Colombia or Panama or, or the Dominican Republic. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I know you come from a big baseball family. Uh, is scouting something that you wanted to do from day one? I, I look at your, your bio, and you have a very interesting educational history with degrees in psychology and philosophy, which <laughs> and master's in philosophy, if I'm reading this correctly. Uh, what has your path been to this? Yeah, it's certainly, uh, it's certainly, I, I grew up in a household where baseball was not just a hobby, it was a way of life. Uh, my great grandfather played pro ball and he managed in winter league. I have, uh, four other family members who played pro ball, including my uncle who played 15 years in the big leagues. My dad played up to double A in the minor leagues. So did my brother and my cousin played up to high A ball. So, uh, the, my path is more of a reflection of my lack of playing skills more than anything else. And so I, I had to find a, a different path. And to be honest, I, I, if you would have asked me uh, in my early 20s uh, what I wanted to do, I wanted, I wanted to teach. I wanted to be a professor. And so that, that explains sort of the, the educational path that I took. But, you know, again, when you grow up in a baseball family and that is what you grew up to know, uh, that pull, it just, I keep going back to that. And so, I didn't have the the physical playing skills, but I grew up around them. My dad was not only a scout, he managed in the minor leagues, and he managed in the minor leagues as well. So we were, I was always around the game. I was always around pro players. I was in the dugout. And so I, I think I absorbed through osmosis and, and just through the sheer, just physically being there. I absorbed a lot of the feel and a lot of the instincts for the game that didn't happen on the field, but I got it through my father and just through, through the people that I was around as I was growing up. What do you enjoy the most about what you do? I think the responsibility, besides the, again, we talked about the day of joy and, and mm-hmm. how that materializes and, and watching families and kids not only fulfill their dreams, but take that first step towards uh, the ultimate professional goal. I think the responsibility of 
when you when you have to embrace and not shy away from what comes with signing someone at these kind of levels, right? It's not. It's certainly not lost upon us, and we take it very seriously. Just just the responsibility it takes, and the trust that we're given from the organization to be able to go out and do this and and kind of select the players that we want to add to the organization. I think when you think about it. Every time there's a, an international signing, it really isn't an international one. It's an organization-wide signing, and it's a reflection of kudos to everybody, the front office, amateur scouting department, high performance, player development, even the projects team. It takes a village to get everything done, and, and, and I'm proud, not just not just me, but everybody involved is so proud of, of breaking down those walls and what it takes to make this happen. And for me, that's just it makes it all very rewarding. How closely do you follow the previous classes, previous signings, and, and what can you learn from previous classes and previous signings? Yeah, for sure. I think we follow both our own signings and the signings of other teams, mm. specifically the players that you are interested in. And there's a balance there between you want to be able to to flip the page and not let it consume you, right? Consume you with fear when you miss on a player, whether it's because you missed uh, on a player, you missed on signing that player and it ended up being an impactful player somewhere else. Or or the few, or the times when you sign a player and, and, and you miss, if you will, right? I think there's that there's that balance of of, of having of having that irrational confidence of we're gonna make this happen the next time that we get an opportunity to do so, but at the same time you have to be informed, not just by your process and decision that you make that, that you're very confident in, but also what happened in the past. And so it's, it's striking that balance and it's delicate and, and it's sort of sways from one end to the other, depending on the year and depending on how the players got and performed. But yeah, for sure. It, we for sure kind of look back, especially recent classes and, and see what happens internally and obviously with other clubs as well. Well, Frankie, we really appreciate you taking so much time today. We know how busy you are running all over the world. Thank you so much, and congratulations on what has been a a very great couple of days for you and the Mariners. No, once again, I really appreciate the invite. Thank you guys for having me. And, and, no, it's a a really, really fun time for us, and I look forward to it uh, every single year, really. As Director of International Amateur Scouting, Frankie Thun Jr. We'll come back with more as Hot Stove continues. More right after this. The Hot Stove Show on Seattle Sports. Presented by Hotback Bar and Grill. Welcome back one final time to the Hot Stove. Gary Hill, Rick Riz, Shannon Dreher with you. This was a really fun show. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's good to. I know you guys did this last week, but it's such a short buildup. I mean, we are going to be in Peoria before we know it. Yeah. And so, just a little bit of hot stove and then Cactus League. I Means I'll have it. to take off my winter hat. Yeah. Well, just talking baseball warms everybody up. You know, everybody's getting so excited after the great year last year, getting to the playoffs for the first time in a long time. Build upon that. See these kids, you know, get better uh, at spring training, excited about 2023. You just feel a little bit warmer. You can feel that Peoria sunshine, and we can't wait to get down there. Our first broadcast is going to be on uh, February 24th against the San Diego Padres. I can't wait. And as we heard, I mean, there's just going to be so much that's new and different yeah. this season, from the yeah. rules to the schedule to where Players. we are going to uh, teams changing and the Rangers looking different, uh, the bases getting bigger, uh, you know, Perry Hill with new drills for the guys, mm-hmm. because it's a, I don't want to say it's a whole new ball game. It's the same ball game, but man, there's 
there's going to be a lot to keep track of. For sure. And to give everyone a little preview on next week's Hot Stove, Scott Service will join us. And I'm actually interested to get his take on, on a lot of things you just mentioned, Shannon, about... He's been in the game a long time. I'm I'm curious to get his thoughts on uh, how he thinks this will play out and how the game will look different. So we'll talk to him next week. And there's a guy, too, that, uh, doggone it, I thought he should have been the American League Manager of the Year. I think he deserved it last year. He came close the year before. He's going to win it one year in the very near future, but I thought he should have won it this year. But he's done a great job with his ball club. He really has. So, looking forward to that interview last year. Gary, great job putting together the show last week at the Hatback Grill and still had Allie and also on the show uh, tonight. It was a lot of fun, buddy. It was fun. You can catch all the action with a Mariners Flex membership. Choose the games and seats you want all season long, plus save the at least 10% on tickets and get priority pre-sale access to 2023 All-Star Week. Come on board at Mariners.com slash flex. That was it. Are we done? Shannon, Rick, thank time you. To, time to say goodbye. All right. That's it. That's See it for the hot stove. Brady, thanks a lot. We'll talk to you next week.